when people ask me what's the most important thing I can do right now to to address climate change, and I often my my answer increasingly is becoming realize that you're living through the most profound moment in human history. That's climate scientist and author Joelle Gerges speaking during a webinar staged by Psychology of Received Climate. The conversation revolved around her new book, Humanity's Moment, a climate scientist's case for hope. I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations, and this is the latest episode. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And let's listen now while Joelle Gerges, who is based at the Australian National University, is in conversation with the Executive Deputy Director of Psychology for Safe Climate, Charles Lefer. And strap yourself in, because this was a long conversation. It went for the best part of 90 minutes. But it was wonderful, so I urge you to listen closely and enjoy it. Thank you very much for uh, coming along this evening, Joel, and thank you so much for your book. Um, it's welcome. my pleasure. No, thank you. It's it's really terrific to be here tonight speaking to this group. Great. Thank you. Well, look, before we get into the real nitty-gritty of the climate reality, emotion, self-care and hope, Perhaps you could begin by just telling us a little bit about your own, when and how you got involved in the climate science, climate change. Sure. So I guess as a young person growing up in a country like Australia, you know, we had, my childhood, I guess, was punctuated by these extreme weather events. And I remember there was a a really severe bushfire season in 1994 and I was a high school student and I remember seeing, you know, bushfire ash just floating through my neighbourhood and it was terrifying. And it was one of those things that I guess as, as a, a child that was um, really interested in, in the natural world and also interested in science, I wanted to understand how the Australian climate works. And I guess that curiosity led me to go on to study um, science at university and I guess I've had, well, the rest is history in many ways, but I guess it comes, it stemmed from wanting to understand, well, what is it that makes Australia so erratic in terms of our weather extremes and wanting to understand more about how the planet worked. Um, but it was also that that love for the natural world. I, I love natural places. I love the ocean, uh, the bush, things like that. And I wanted to see how I could, I guess, shape my life into trying to do what I can, I suppose, as a privileged person in a country like Australia, as an educated person, to do what I can. So I suppose my my curiosity came about from my from growing up in Australia, just like many people, I guess, and wanting to understand more. Yeah, it's interesting that you you had your uh, that early contact with uh, with climate change as well. And uh, look, let's really get into the hard stuff now because. Um, uh, you you obviously had years of experience now in the whole climate science area and with the IPCC. And um, one of the things which we really, it's really important for us in PSC is to really be aware of the climate reality. So I'm just wondering if you can, I guess, uh, I know it's a big ask, but tell us uh, how you see the current 
climate reality, if you like, and also what you think we need to urgently do? Yeah, sure. So I guess anyone who's been living in Australia for the last few years has experienced some of the extreme weather events that we've had. So Black Summer, I think, in, in 2019, 2020, was a, a real pivotal moment in, in, our, in our history. Uh, you know, in that particular uh, bushfire season, we saw about 25% of Australia's temperate forest burn in a single bushfire season. During a you know an extreme event, uh, extreme bushfire season, maybe two percent might burn. So we're talking orders of magnitude um, greater than what we would expect just from a sort of background historical conditions. And after those fires, um, our most iconic species, the koala, is now an endangered species along the east coast of this country. Now that's something that is a, a pretty confronting reality to come to terms with when you stop and think about what that means as an Australian. We're actually seeing ecosystems starting to collapse and come apart on our watch. So, you know, sometimes when we talk about climate change, we think about these things as these very distant, far away, 2030, 2040, 2050, 2100. But in fact, what was really confronting to me as a scientist that was working on the IPCC report at the time is that you can have really abrupt change happen very quickly in the space of just a season. So in the space of just one single summer season or bushfire season, really, we saw the Australian landscape really transformed in, in radical ways that it hasn't really bounced back as well. So it's um, we saw 50% of our um, Gondwanan rainforest uh, species um, uh, rainforests burn in a, in a single bushfire season and these are areas that don't usually burn these are you know moss drenched areas that are, have been around since the time of dinosaurs and we were seeing these um, these forests burn for the first time in many places so uh, it was really really confronting to witness that and at the same time we were also seeing um, the Great Barrier Reef was bleaching yet again uh, and over just a handful of years, we've seen 50% of the Great Barrier Reef actually die off. And that doesn't include the most recent mass bleaching event from, from 2022. So that's an underestimate in terms of where we are right now. So when you stop and you think about the reality of that, as Australians, we need to wake up to the reality that we are starting to see profound changes not only in our natural ecosystems, but in our in our human societies. And, and of course, Many of you would know about the, the East Coast floods of last year, 2022, where we saw entire towns effectively wiped off the map. Uh, my husband's family is from Lismore in northern New South Wales. Um, we live in northern New South Wales when I'm not in the city teaching. And it was really, really confronting to see the firsthand effects of what happens when you start to get these extreme events that come one after the, uh, after the other and they compound and they actually start to displace people and really start to, you start seeing the fabric of our communities come apart. And so I guess to come back to the, the initial question, Charles, it's really of understanding that we are facing an emergency. And it's not a word that I use lightly. As a scientist, I've got to be very careful with my phrasing. Um, and as a IPCC scientists, so someone that's worked at that UN level and sat at the table with representatives from all over the world, I realised, I guess maybe for the first time, that what was happening in Australia was being mirrored in so many different parts of the world. So in my chapter team, I had people from Colombia, from Pakistan, 
you know, from all over the world and we were all reporting these major changes in our particular part of the planet. And so I guess for me the real motivation for writing this book was to try and convey the scientific reality as clearly as possible to ordinary people so that they can engage in a conversation that feels inclusive, that doesn't feel so alienating with all the facts and figures. Um, although there are a lot of facts and figures in that book, I, I do take you by the hand and walk you through. So it's not, I hope it's not an inundation, but it is a, it's, it's um, basically sort of takes you through my own processing of it. And I guess that's something we'll probably talk about further in this conversation because I, I fast realised that a book that was just a whole bunch of facts and figures was not going to do the job that I needed, which was to try and to get people to connect emotionally to this topic. So, so maybe that's, that answers that question. Yeah, no, look, thank you. No, it, it does. It, uh, um, I suppose they're sort of just going back to that question though so just from the climate point of view what do we need to do at the moment or not do right so we're in what is called the critical decade so basically from now until 2030 we need to halve global emissions and basically get to net zero emissions um, by by the middle of the century and and that is a that is an enormous task in terms of decarbonizing the world's economies and starting to regenerate our natural places uh, it, it's enormous and, and the challenge is there. But when you look at some of the reality of where we actually are under all the different um, climate model projections that are, that are assessed in the uh, IPCC six assessment report, so the latest UN report, we, we are on track to breach 1.5 degrees of global warming um, in the early 2030s under all emission scenarios. So we have to come to terms with, with what that actually means. And, and so right now, the that doesn't mean that the Paris Agreement targets, we can throw them away and then they're not useful. It means that we might have some overshoot and we need to come back down. So this is this is really where we're at right now in terms of what the IPCC says. It, we, it's really one of the key messages is how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. So whether we see 1.5 degrees of warming, two degrees, four degrees, so on, that all depends on what we do within this next decade to turn things around. So it is an extraordinarily profound moment in human history. It, there's never been uh, higher consequences, to be honest, because everything is playing out in the background of our planetary home. And now that that is starting to be destabilised, it is starting to become intrusive. It's becoming part of the lived experience of not just here in Australia, although it's very clear what's happened here in Australia, but all over the world. You only have to watch the SBS news for 10 minutes to really get a sense of what is happening in the world. It, it, it's confronting, uh, it's real, and it is upon us. So I guess it's one of these things that it is extremely urgent. Um, mm. And basically, we're at a point where we have to figure out how much we can save and collectively what we want to do about that. So the time for being a passive bystander is it has long passed. Like we're really in overtime here. We're really in borrowed time. And that's why I spend a lot of time uh, towards the end of the book talking about the intergenerational aspects of this and the ethics of that. So it is really the people alive today that are going to determine the future course of humanity. And that is a that's a it's a big thing to say, but it's actually true. So mm. It's, it's when people ask me what's the most important thing I can do right now to to address climate change and I often my, my answer increasingly is becoming realize that you're living through the most profound moment in human history that will help 
starting there and then everything else can flow from there. If you, if you think that we have all this time, well, then you're not really in touch with the reality of the situation. So my, I guess, key message is that we need to wake up right now and realise that there's no time to waste. Uh, but the good news is a lot can be done, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But coming to that realisation of just how bad things are, I suppose, was part of the the, um, the process of writing this book, I think, for me, because as somebody who does, uh, you know, the frontline sort of scientific research, um, I'm in front of it day in, day out, and I guess um, the average person isn't aware of it because they're doing other things, which is fine. I mean, it's normal that other people, you know, you know you're taking kids to school, you're, you're living your life it's hard to take on this sort of planetary scale uh, crisis, if you like. It, it's, 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 it's psychologically difficult. It, it, it's heavy. It, it, it is burdensome. So I guess I'm hoping to start a dialogue about, about what, what we can do at this particular moment. And I think as Australians, um, we have a lot to offer the global community at this moment as well. Yes, yes. Look, thank you. And uh, look, one of the things you say in, in the book is... Uh, this is, I'm, I'm quoting, if we don't put the brakes on now, then really there's not much hope left. So this, that's a pretty strong statement. It is a strong statement. We're not at that point yet. We're not at the point of no return in case anyone's on the line and wondering whether it is all, is all too late. It is not all too late. And it's not a helpful way of thinking about it. But the longer, you, I, I often like to use the medical analogy. Like if you have, if say you got a, a diagnosis of cancer and you knew if you got it early enough, you could actually stop it, you could do something. You could avoid the worst consequences. You would take the action. And so I think we need to think about climate change in a similar way of understanding that we have some, some very serious symptoms and signs now that can't be avoided. And some things are gone. Some things are actually beyond repair. But there is still a lot we can save. And there's certainly a lot we can do to stabilise what is still with us. So I think if we think about it like that, it becomes a bit of a different way of framing it because you wouldn't hesitate for a moment if a loved one had cancer, wouldn't you throw everything you had at it to try and do what you can? And I guess that's what the scientific community and many others are trying to do is to really try and ignite this social movement that we need to sort of turn this around. And that comes back to our cultural values. And that's something I guess we'll talk about as well. Yes, indeed. Yeah, look, I and look, I think one of the things about your book is, is as well as you were saying, and it's been said by, by Christy, is just how you do mix in the emotional side of it. And I guess that's what can makes it so uh, so powerful. And that, I mean, in a way, just from what you were saying before, it's inevitable that we are going to have very powerful feelings about the, uh, the, the climate situation. So. Absolutely. It's a, it's a sense of loss and grief that we all feel. And, and I think I realised that I had to bring my full self to the page for this to be an honest book. I, I started off writing it in a particular way, then I realised this isn't going to work like that. <laughs> I had to put away my kind of academic armouring and just be a human being and sit down and be real. How would you really want to relate to someone and talk to them about what's going on? And from that place, the book flowed. It really did flow from that place, but it was is really when I, I guess, I gave myself the permission because I must say it's quite taboo in science to, to talk about um, emotional um, topics and, and, and emotional responses. We're meant to be very objective and rational, but my feeling is that you can be objective and rational and, and, and professional but still be a human being. So I think it's an outdated notion and I would like to see that change because I think the culture of science 
Um, we have some very sensitive and, and, and brilliant minds in our field and, and, and deep thinkers and feelers, and I think we just don't often talk about that, at least not in public. We can talk about it when we're having a you know, tea break at a conference and we will talk about things sort of off the record, but you won't hear many scientists talk about how they really feel about it. But I thought, well, look, I'm going to write about how I feel about it because I feel like it might help give other people permission to, to actually acknowledge that this is really hard. Mm, mm. This is actually really difficult. But you know, we don't stay in that place of feeling like everything's really difficult, but you have to start from a real authentic place. Otherwise, you're really just skirting around the edges. And as we know, you know, you, you can never really deal with something unless you go straight through the heartland of it. So, mm, you know, yeah. that's 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 just reality. Yeah, yeah no, look, I, I really appreciate that about your book. I mean, I think it's uh, it's something great that you really, um, really from the front line, talk both eloquently and um, uh, in a very moving way about uh, about about the situation and I think I think that's so important uh, as you say I think it really by sharing with other people some of your deep feelings about the situation it really allows allows the readers to um, uh, be able to maybe, you know, hold their own uh, feelings or talk about those sort of feelings to, to other people. Yeah, and I guess that was part of what I really wanted to do is I wanted the reader to find themselves in the pages and be able to relate to me as the narrator and find a part of themselves in there because it's part of, I guess, the, our collective lived experience and, and I'm just putting words to things that many people feel. I had emails from scientific colleagues emailing me saying thank you when I read your piece on XYZ, um, that really helped me realise that I also felt that way. So I think unless you're brave enough to actually put that on the table, and it is a vulnerability, and it's something that I was quite terrified, to be, to be honest, when this book came out, I, was, I had a bit of a vulnerability overload moment where I was like, oh, my God, I have just put out all this really personal stuff into the public. I can't take that back. But I realised that the stakes are so high and if that is going to help someone in in some way to connect, then I think it's worthwhile. So I, yeah. I feel like in some ways I, it's a bit of a personal sacrifice because I'm, I'm actually a really private person. I'm a really introverted person. I'm a nerd, right? I'm a, sci I'm a scientist. I, I spend a lot of time like by myself or looking at numbers and things like that. So I'm. it's not a natural um, thing for, for someone like me to do. So to write this book was actually a really big deal. And as I also share in the book, um, I also struggled with depression for a range of other sort of personal um, reasons. And so I guess I that, that that also informs the way I deal with this issue because I'm a human being. I'm not just a scientist. I, I, I bring my own personal history. And so part of what I've had to, to come to terms with is how do you maintain faith in, in humanity when sometimes things are so grim and, and, and you feel like, you know, you when you see the atrocities and you see the mindless destruction and just how insane things can feel, sometimes it's really hard to, to, to not get depressed. Mm. If then well, someone said to me, well, that's actually a really rational response to a really insane kind of irrational situation. So it made it sort of, and I hope that's helpful for people to hear because it's a natural thing to feel angry or really sad or really despairing or, you know, 
immense rage even around this mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's disingenuous to pretend like those those emotions don't exist. No, absolutely, and I'm, and and I guess you 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 know this is exactly what we try to do in psychology for a safe climate to sort of really validate people's yeah. feelings that are you know that are that are are genuine and 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 very appropriate if you like to the situation and yeah. and perhaps I could just read uh, a couple of your your entries from your diary which you which you have in the book which are sort of very revealing of just how how sort of terrible you felt at times mm. um uh one was about despair something inside me feels like it has snapped that some essential thread of hope has failed the knowing that sometimes things can't be saved, that the planet is dying, that we couldn't get it together in time to save the irreplaceable. Yeah, so that was a dark day, that one. That was a dark day. But I guess sometimes I feel that way. And and I guess there is an element of truth to some things are beyond repair to to some degree. So I'm currently working on a a podcast uh, which is looking at um, sort of highlights of the IPCC report and in in one of those episodes we talked to a coral reef scientist and she's basically was telling us how this this coral reef site that she'd been working on for 20 years is now effectively dead and and basically lost to humanity forever because those temperatures will not come back down in you know in any reasonable time frame and and I think it's one of those things where we have to acknowledge that there are going to be really serious losses. I mean, how do you come to terms with the loss of an entire component of our biosphere? And here in Australia, the, the Great Barrier Reef is the largest living organism on the planet and half of it's dead, right? Yeah. So that that's actually quite a profound thing to come to terms with. And, and I think as Australians, um, you know, David Attenborough often writes about Australia because we're such an extraordinary place. Like, you know, um, Australia has more unique plants and animals than anywhere else on the planet. So even places like Brazil or Madagascar or Papua New Guinea, all these exotic places you might think, Australia is number one when it comes to all of these, you know, unique animals and plants that we have. We, we're extraordinary. And so we we are caretakers and custodians of this incredible part of the planet and so for me as well, I feel like this book is, 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 is told by an Australian scientist. We often hear about climate change told by many American men, let's be honest. That's fine. But there aren't a lot of diversity of the voices. So I really wanted to bring the Australian perspective of what it felt like, for instance, to be, you know, how when you walk through the Australian bush, it's just so alive and it can be deafening with all of the life sometimes. And and when I was um, on my honeymoon in Japan and I write about this and going to a Japanese forest and doing a big sort of pilgrimage walk and just the whole landscape's devoid of life, not even seeing the only life we saw was, well, it was roadkill. It wasn't even life. There weren't even, there was nothing there. And I think that that contrast between the thriving diversity we have in a country like Australia and other places where we just don't have that anymore, where it's been so decimated, I think we have a unique perspective as Australians and having the longest Indigenous culture, continuous culture in the world. I mean, it, it, I, I personally feel we, we we have a really unique role to play in terms of how we frame this as this moment for us to to reclaim our stewardship of the planet 
And this is something that is known to Indigenous people all over the world. This is nothing new. We have just gone crazy with consumerism. We've lost the way. We've lost our connection um, to nature, to each other, to what really matters. And we've become these sort of mindless consumers. And we need to snap out of it. We need to realise that, hang on, we need to course correct. The planet is actually, the ice sheets are melting and we're destroying the world's rainforests and things are actually starting to falter now. And I guess as a scientist, working at that UN level, I was able to see like all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and realise this is not just happening in Australia, it's happening everywhere. And so what are we going to do? And that's why I called this book Humanity's Moment, because it is our moment to step up and to reclaim our humanity as well. There was a chapter I found particularly kind of disturbing to write, it was really made me cry a lot, was the displacement of people from their from rising sea levels, particularly the really rich cultures of the Pacific Islands. And if any of you have ever been to the Pacific Islands, I mean, they're just the most gorgeous places with deep, rich roots into their culture and connection to the ocean. And these people are now being displaced from those lands, their ancestral lands, and it, it's like a severing. It, 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 even if you rehome re, re them, there's a, there's a cultural connection that gets lost. And I think it's, are we all good with that? I guess it was just that moment where I was just thinking like collectively that that's a, that's a cultural values thing. Like are we all okay with that? And so that's where I feel like just reconnecting with what it is to be human and to be humane I think is really important. So, you know, we can talk about climate science and we can talk about all the facts and figures, but ultimately it boils down to the people and the places that we love. And that's what it, how it comes to me now. It really just comes down to the things that we care about. So we don't have to get too stuck in all of the conversations about emissions and drawdown and we can have those conversations, they're fine, but not everyone's going to be able to participate in those conversations. But the conversations we, the vast majority of us mere mortals can can really connect with are things like our cultural values, things like removing or creating the social license for something to go ahead or not. So we can either create or remove the social license for the continued exploitation of fossil fuels in this country. So right now we do have a change of government and it is a really fantastic thing, but there is still over 100 different gas, um, oil and coal projects on the table. So are we going to continue to, so what are we going to do about it, guys? Like this is this is our moment, right? So this is our moment as Australians to say on behalf of the planet, we actually, because we are the largest fossil fuel exporter in the world, um, what are we going to do about that? So mm. I, I think it's, that's why it is this profound moment because it, it it's, it's so consequential and it reverberates out for millennia. So mm. it is a, a really critical moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, look, let's come, in a moment, we'll come to sort of hope and the sort of things that you're sort of talking about in terms of really uh, trying to have a social movement, if you like. But mm. maybe we could just come back a bit more to sort of say the importance of talking about climate feelings, which is obviously something we do and something you you sort of talk about in the book about having the sort of tough conversations mm. and how important that is going to be. Uh, not just for us as individuals, but really in a sense for the whole culture to be able to have the space to be able to actually hold the sort of painful feelings that we're in at the moment. Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, the, the conversation's long overdue and I think many of us feel it. We feel it in our private places, in our private spaces, but 
I think collectively we need to be coming together to talk about this because it is a reality. So I think most Australians now know that climate change is, is real, it's being caused by human activity, and it is going to continue to escalate the more carbon we put into the atmosphere. These are all just facts, right? So, so we do need to talk about what it is to, to be living through this profound, tumultuous, you know, era in human history and how we are going to choose to show up in that moment. And so that's going to bring up a whole range of different feelings. Like for me personally, um, you know, as I mentioned, I live in northern New South Wales and I often go walk the, 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 the beaches there and increasingly after these storm events, you can just see the, the, the coastline eroding and eroding and eroding and eroding. You know, you can just see the creep of it all or going to rainforests where I love and then seeing all the brown tinges where the fire stopped and realising, okay, those patches aren't going to grow back. We still have these. So, you know, many of us, and I'm sure all of you probably have your own sort of unique places that really resonate with you when you think about where is it that you feel that the world is changing? It might be in your local park or whatever it may be, but we all have our own sort of personal connection to, to that. And I suppose for me, um, I guess as a writer, I, I feel the way I make sense of the world is to, is to try and put it into words and to get it on paper um, and, and then try and talk to other sensitive and thoughtful people who are deep thinkers and realising that there are people like that out there who really care about these things. Not everybody wants to talk about inane celebrity chefs and whatever. That's all fine. We all need our outlets. I'm not, I'm not judging. All I'm saying is that we are in a really we are in an emergency situation that does require emergency action. So I think it's just about if, if, if someone like me can't be real about, about it and I'm in front of it every day, then how can I expect other people to really understand? And so mm -hmm. that's, why I, that's why I felt I had to be really honest in this book. And that, that, that's really, that's how it came to be. And then the moment that I was honest, it really flowed because I feel like I'm just being, human and that's that's a collective universal feeling I I'm just trying to put some words around those feelings so that other people can then have their words around those feelings and we can have a conversation so I'm hoping yeah. this just starts yeah. conversations like this is not the this is a starting point this is not the be all and end all this is I hope helps ignite conversations in your own communities and groups and in your own mm. self around how you feel because it is a really profound moment you know people think about these moments in history, like the 1960s, these revolutionary times, and think, you know, wow, that seemed amazing. But, you know, we're going to look back at the 2020s and say, well, where were you? Where were mm. you in the 2020s? What did you do? How did you show up? And particularly if you have children as well, I really feel like that is something you want to be proud of what you did at this moment. And I think we need better stories. And, and, and so in the last part of the book, I was I really enjoyed reading writers like Rebecca Solnit. Some of you might know the US writer, Rebecca Solnit. She's amazing. She's so inspiring. And she, she wrote a really good book called Hope in the Dark, um, which was just profound. And she's got a new anthology coming out, which I've contributed a, a little essay to, which is called Not Too Late. Some of you might really enjoy it. it it's, it's, it's got collected, it's a, it's a collection of essays from all over the world which is basically telling this story, which it is, it is, is not too late. So I put forward the scientific case, so that's my contribution, but it has other things. So if you haven't read Rebecca's work, please 
track it down because she's very wise and it makes me also realize that there's so many good people out there thinking about this in so many different ways and maybe it was a revelation to me as a scientist because I'm often reading scientific journals and things I don't have a lot of time to read other material as much as I would like but Mm. the fact is is that we all have something to contribute and that's what I think is the beauty of this movement is that it isn't going to be a bunch of nerdy scientists that lead the social movement it's going to be people that are creating I guess our cultural change and that can come from so many different places and I guess we'll probably talk about that later as well but there is really there's really room for everyone in this movement it's not just one size fits all. I I guess um, perhaps an area to go with this is partly carrying on from what you're talking about and I guess a really important issue uh, well there are so many important issues but uh, um, I'm not quite sure which one to go with. Uh, perhaps just briefly, self-care is something so important and burnout. And I know that you talk about that mm. in your uh, in your book as something really, really important. And, and obviously a lot of your self-care is mm. very much tied up with the natural environment and how important that is. Yeah, really it is. I mean, for me, the connection to the natural world, whether it be going for a walk on the beach or swimming in the ocean or going for a bush walk, or just being outside in a local park or anything like that is just a reminder that you are a part of the natural world and there is a life force that sustains us all. And when you tap into that, it does recharge you. And it also reminds you of part of the reason um, so much that there is so much worth saving. Mm-hmm. There's still so much beauty out there. And I think sometimes when you're around, you know, really difficult material all the time, you can just see the ugliness of everything. And I think nature is a really beautiful antidote to that where you can go and just be, um, I I guess, just have your breath taken away by, you know, a magnificent coastline or whatever it might be that really kind of restores something in you. And so for me, obviously, as, as, you know, I guess as a a scientist, I'm really connected to the natural world and and the way it works. Um, But it's also people and, and finding solace in others and finding other sensitive souls who have empathy and have shared um, interests and um, an ability to to be sensitive when you are feeling raw. Uh, and so, you know, if you are feeling really raw, it's probably not the time to, to go out and, you know, t- talk to a bunch of climate sceptics, for instance, for me, um, no. because that, yeah. that's not a helpful conversation at the best of times, but it's particularly yeah. not when you're feeling vulnerable it's not not great but I suppose it's just about pacing yourself and realizing you're in it for the long haul and there's some days where it feels so overwhelming and that's okay then you drop it leave it go do something go to an art gallery go for a swim do whatever it is that you do to ground yourself do some yoga whatever it is that connects you back into the fact connecting you back to the fact you're a human in a body because ultimately we're just animals on this planet we're all just doing our best from day to day um, I think it's important to just ground yourself and, and try and enjoy those beautiful things that are still there. And like I said, as Australians, you don't have to look too far. You know, if you wake up early, you hear the dawn choruses, kookaburras, there's all sorts of things like this. We have so many things to remind us that we're part of an ecosystem and part of this very rich life force that sustains the whole planet. And we have a beautiful part of it here in Australia. So I think there are really good ways to do that. But burnout is a very, very real thing. And, you know, there are times where the work will require a lot of you. So, for instance, with IPCC, I was working around the clock. I start the book 
at 5.15 a.m. on a Saturday that I had an IPCC meeting and we're, I'm getting up because I'm the only Australian representative on, on that chapter and I have to be there because I'm res- representing all of my people back at home. So I have to I have to be there, right? So mm-hmm. so that's not the time to like chill out and go and take a break, right? So you've got to pick your moments of when it's it's time to do the work and when it's time to rest. And just like everything in nature, everything ebbs and flows. And, and your energy ebbs and flows. And just knowing that I think is really important and learning to tune into those cycles of your, your productive times, your not so productive times, but also the t- stage of your life as well. You mm. know, that changes I've been finding as I'm getting into my sort of middle years that, you know, I've got to be prote- really protective of my energy sometimes. And I've got to learn the word no. I get mm. asked on, on a daily basis to do all sorts of stuff, but I'm only choosing to say yes to the things where I feel that ignite my interest or I really want to connect with a particular group of people or so things like that I think can help you with burnout because you only have a finite I guess a finite little jar of energy or whatever you want to call it and you need to dole it out really carefully because it it's it, it's it's a it's a precious resource mm. <laughs> I hope can that I, helps can, yeah yeah no that's really helpful no thank you thank you for sharing how how you deal with self, your self-care which is again something we we try and help people with but now i, I want to ask you a, a sort of again another difficult question about how can we find hope when the, the crisis is getting worse and and when and we're not uh, taking enough enough action um, i know you've written kind of quite a lot about that and mm. how we can find hope I mean, I also like it, the fact that you've talked about that you can have despair. Despair and hope aren't necessarily opposite. That they can no, they together. coexist. They really do coexist. I think these things are not so black and white. And I guess for me, you know, these last few years have been just such a difficult time for everybody. You know, we, we've dealt with COVID. We've dealt with um, all sorts of extreme weather events. Uh, for me, I dealt with IPCC on top of all of that. And I guess through it all, I saw a lot of really interesting things. So, for instance, when our um, during the black summer bushfires and our precious places were on fire you know we had volunteer firefighters going out to protect our collective places that we love when you think about the healthcare workers on the front line of that the, the COVID crisis they were working around the clock to try and protect our communities and then there I was part of a, an IPCC community volunteers we're all volunteers working you know for three and a half years for free on top of our day jobs So you can't tell me that there isn't goodness in humanity. You only have to look around you to realise that. And also with the East Coast floods, how when the SES didn't turn up, neighbours got in their kayaks and their dinghies and they turned up and they literally saved hundreds of people. Um, I had family members that did that, even though they were flooded out of their own house, they got in a kayak and they went and got everybody else that they could get from their street. And, And I think when it comes back down to it, you know, it's so easy to get so polarised and you're thinking that everybody, or no one cares about this or people are terrible or, you know, that kind of black and white thinking. And, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too. But the reality is, is, you know, people can be really awful, but they can also be magnificent at the same time, right? Yes, so yes. I think if we just sort of think about how we want to show up in that moment, we want to be that person that restores someone else's faith in humanity. We don't want to be one of those people that is just the the person that is making everybody sort of tear their hair out, right? So we we know what that person feels like and that person has their own issues and, okay, but you can only control you, right? So you can only take control of what you, how you want to show up in the moment and how and what kind of legacy you want to leave. 
Do you want to be part of the people who actually tried their very best with whatever they had to do what you could? Or do you just want to be someone that becomes a sort of passive, disconnected, depressed, jaded, bitter? And I swing between the two of them, to be honest. I'm not trying to say for a moment that I always have this sorted. That's why I'm being really honest about this. So please, you know, if you're interested in what I'm saying, read this book because there's a lot of my own struggle with this. Like (laughs) there are times where I feel like, oh, my God, humanity is, it seems doomed. And other times where I see the very best in humanity and I think, no, hang on a sec. We've also got a history of this. And I also write about the the, the whole, um, you know, the social movements in, in human history of civil rights and gender equality and all these things that they're not a done deal. They're a constant battle. This, this, this struggle for this tug of war for social justice is ongoing and climate change is the latest thing in this long continuum of human history. And if you can stop and think about this moment like that, it changes everything. And that's why I was trying to say, coming back to the very, very first point I made, the most powerful thing you can do right now is realise you are living through a historic moment, the most historic moment that this planet is ever going to face. And you are part of this extraordinary generation that can leave a legacy. And how amazing is that? Yes, it's also a huge burden, totally, okay? It's not going to be easy. It's hard. But it's totally worthwhile and it provides us with immense meaning if you stop and you think about the things that are worth doing in life. I think this is one of those things. Mm. Take a day off, by all means. Like if you need to take a breather, take a breather. But do what you can where you can. And I guess Mm. that is is, is really where I would, that's probably how I would sum it up, yeah. Yeah, no, thanks very much. I mean, it really is towards the end of the book, there was a, a lot of sort of hopeful messages like that where you talk about the forces for good and uh, social movements and social tipping points, which are... Mm which are, uh, are really, really important. And uh, I can see your connection with the sort of Rebecca Solnit and the, the, the sort of light that she brings to situations. She's amazing. And for me as a scientist, to read her work, to, to, to really connect up with other people who are thinking about these things, it was a revelation to me. And, and I guess that's that it, it's, a, it's just so good to know that, that a lot of deep thinkers thinking about this. So we just need to tell better stories about how we want to vision this future world and bring it into reality and, and that's really it so yes it's hard but let's get over that bit let's get over to let's start building the better world that we want and I think um that's a meaningful thing to do but you're not alone and and I think for me even it was it was so nice to be able to have the opportunity to read writers like Rebecca um and, and it really motivated me because it made me feel like somehow the, the the burden lifted a little bit from my own shoulders where I realized like I'm just one person in all of the people that want to do something I'm just lending my voice and my mm. my my life force to it at this moment yes well look thank thank you very much look I I'm, I'm gonna think we I guess we can continue with the conversation with the questions but we're sure. I think we're, we're at time now probably to to, to go in, in in a few minutes uh, to to have questions. So if people could uh, place uh, the questions in chat, and uh, but now just to finish off this segment, Joelle very kindly has agreed to read um, an excerpt from her book. Yeah, it's just a couple of paragraphs. I just wanted to leave you with something where you know I got to with my writing. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. The sense that nothing can or ever will change is one of the hallmarks of depression. As Rebecca Solnit puts it, the despair felt like a stall, a becalming, 
are running aground. Believing that things will ever get better is still something I grapple with when things get really bad. Although I've cycled through this enough times to know that these feelings will eventually pass, when I'm in the grip of darkness, I honestly don't believe it ever will. I'm slowly learning that I need to be patient and remember that eventually the wind will pick up and catch my sails once more. I've also discovered that I have people in my life who are willing to wade in and give me a nudge until the stick of the sand beneath me gives way and I'm back in open water. But when I boil it all down, what gives me hope comes down to this. There is still so much goodness in humanity. Even if you can't see it around you or have stopped believing that it even exists, there is still something good in all of us. When I'm really down, I have to trust that eventually, when the darkness has finally dissipated, I will be able to see again. Until then, I need to hold on and be guided by the light in others. When I allow myself to shelter in their compassion and care, it stills my own flickering light until eventually it starts to steady itself and glow a little brighter. Thank you very much. That's a beautiful piece. Thank you. Thanks very much. So perhaps um, I'll uh, hand over to Christy to um, give us some questions from the, from the chat, if they're coming in. Thanks, Charles. Um, thank you, Joel. That was a beautiful chapter to read. Um, we have got two questions here. So everyone, if you ha do have questions for Joel, you can um, continue popping them in the chat. But Zach here is a says, I'm 18. Thank you for being here, Zach. And they say, is my future going to be significantly worse than my present or past? It's a really good question, Zach. I think, you know, this is exactly what we're fighting for at this very moment. We're wanting it to be not as bad as it is right now, but if we continue on the, the current trajectory that we are on, then things will escalate and get worse. And I'm sorry to have to be the bearer of bad news, but that's the truth. But the thing is, the good news is, is there are people all over the world who are doing absolutely everything they can around the clock to turn this around. So I'm coming to you as a climate scientist who's worked on the IPCC and trying to give you as much information to help you make decisions around how you want to show up and be a part of those um, conversations. Um, but, you know, in terms of the young people that are doing things, there's, there are all sorts of people who are really fighting for change. I mean, Greta Thunberg has a book out at the moment, which is I contributed a chapter to, which really collates a lot of the, the latest information and is really inspiring. So I guess it's one of those things that we have to look to the future with our eyes wide open. There's no point in being in denial and we have to see what's there. So the, 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 the most honest thing I can say is that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, right? But you can choose how we, what kind of legacy we leave in terms of are we part of the group of people that are going to try and make things less worse? So... That, that is, this is why it is humanity's moment because it's not just for Australia, it's everywhere. So, yes, but you are living through a, a profoundly important time. But you're not alone. There are many of us with you, you know, my generation and the, even the elders above me. So, you know, you're a part of something. So even though it is, it feels heavy and it feels terrifying in some ways, um, we do one day at a time, we do one week at a time, we move forward together. So I hope that helps. But one of the key messages from IPCC is 
you know, how bad we let things get is still in our hands. So we, we, we aren't facing runaway climate change at this moment, but we are, we are facing some destruction. But how bad it gets really comes down to the decisions and all the action that happens in this next decade. This is why it's called the crit critical decade and why it's so important. Thanks, That's also it, how important it is, the whole intergenerational aspect of things, as you were talking about earlier, that uh, yep. what, 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 you know, well, one thing we know is from the, the paper we've talked about from Caroline Hickman and the, in yes. the Lancet Planetary Health, which really shows the level of distress of, of a lot of young people and how really how, how important it is for us to with our work well whether it's psychological or just well helping with the planet that how how important it's going to be for for future generations absolutely i devote a whole chapter of the book zach to that in terms of future generations because there are moments in that book where i felt like i just want to stop writing this book and then i realized that i can't stop writing this book because of young people i can't stop writing this book so i had to put aside my own sort of thing to just move forward and realize this is bigger than me and so there's a whole chapter on the intergenerational element, which I really strongly, um, I feel it. I feel it deeply. There's a question here, Joel, um, from Damien. Yes. Who says, Does Joel have a perspective on how we balance the need to have people understand the scale of the crisis with the desire not to cause people to be immobilised by the fear and anxiety? Yeah, so that's the fine line we all walk, particularly someone like me being a scientist wanting to inform the public. I think every you've got to meet people where they're at. So not everyone has the capacity to absorb all the information. It's just as simple as that for various different reasons in their life. So I think it just really comes down to the individual. Some of us have more capacity so those people can really absorb the information and do what they can. And other people, it might be their life stage. It might be they might be dealing with illness or maybe they're too young or too old or whatever it might be. So I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think my approach is to be really realistic about, about things. I, I'm not Pollyanna-ish about it, but I'm also not a doomsdayer. I really don't think that's a helpful narrative right now. I think people need, like, you just think about it, the medical analogy. I find it helpful. If you go to your doctor, you want them to tell you how bad is it? Like, seriously, tell me how bad it is. And then from that place, we can make a decision about what we do about it together. And I think if you think of it like that, some people, everybody's different in terms of what they can cope with. But I'm a firm believer in it's best to be grounded in reality. Mm. It can be hard. That's why we're talking about it. <laughs> oh, well. um, Lucinda saying, hi, Joanne. Thank you for your presentation. I listened with interest to the Fear and Wonder podcast preview last night. And I'm wondering if it's still going ahead. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, um, Fear and Wonder is a new podcast that's being funded by The Conversation, which is a, a news media um, organisation. And, yes, I'm, I'm going to be co-hosting a seven-part podcast series. We're about halfway through the recording at the moment, so that's actually why I'm in Melbourne. I'm, um, we've been recording it at the State Library, which is fantastic. We've got lovely studios down there, and it will start to get released, I think, later this month because the final volume of the IPCC report, which is called the Synthesis Report, will come out. So it's going to be timed around then. So, um, yep, it's definitely happening. So take a listen if you want to have a – it's very conversational. So it's if you maybe don't want to read a book, although please do read the book because I wrote it and I'd really appreciate people absorbing it. But even if you really can't for whatever reason, the podcast is also really um, hope, um, useful, I hope, yeah. 
Thanks. And Lindsay is saying, thanks so much, Joelle. I deal a lot with climate issues and I'm astonished at the extent to which we all cling to our lifestyles, mm -hmm. even though we all know our lifestyles are wrecking the world. What message do you have to help people to voluntarily buy into such personal change? Well, I think the knowledge is power is the first thing, like of realising the, the personal impact you do have. So you can choose a lifestyle that doesn't really wreck the world as much. I have a whole section in there about um, the meat industry, and I know it's an uncomfortable topic for people because it's very, you know, food choices are very personal, they can be cultural, but I do talk about, about that. And so um, it was one of those things that, you know, my editor was a little bit like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, no, I, I, we've got to go there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Got to go there. So it's one of those things where you can choose. So whether it's, it might not be um, around your dietary, um, you know, uh, choices, but it can be about the way that you live in terms of how you get around, what you do with your days, how you vote, what you buy, all those different things. So for me, it's about bringing awareness to, to those things and, um, and walking the walk. So, you know, you can, there's no point in pointing the finger at other people if you're not doing the thing that, you know, you would like to see. So that's really where I think it's really empowering and it feels really good. To, to do those things so um again don't look outward look inward first to, to try and change the way you're doing things and also you know collectively when everybody starts doing good things then we end up with a good society right but if we start being very selfish and not thinking about the consequences but sometimes people don't know so some of the statistics in there about meat they're confronting they're confronting okay so you can do what you want with that information i'm not saying you have to do anything with that information but you might want to do something about it if you do feel moved by what you hear for instance but it's not for me to tell you what to do but it wouldn't be bad to stop and think about <laughs> the way that you're living because it has it has an impact on on other people yeah mm. I just want to let you know that Zach said thank you for the response, Joel. It was much appreciated. Last question. And also Claire has said thanks, Joel. Appreciate your focus on the agency and collective action and very inspiring. And then there's a question here from Bronwyn. The majority of folks in my community are struggling in the current economic situation mm. and grappling with uh, competing priorities to fight for. I know there's a strong connection between cost of living, social inequity and climate change, but I'm struggling with how to communicate that to get the community to fight for solutions. Do you have any advice? Yeah, it's a, the struggle is real is the first thing I would say there. This is a really difficult time for I think many, many of us really, you know, there, there are really, we're living in difficult times. The circumstances are challenging. But isn't it exactly the moment where imagine if we had a government decided to just say, okay, cost of living let's just really totally offset all of our electricity prices by subsidizing solar community batteries everywhere let's just do it we could do that and i, and I think that the federal government is state taking steps towards that but i guess that would help a lot if we weren't paying for, for instance electricity bills but again it's about who we vote for and what we ask of our or demand of our politicians and our leaders um for instance um so i think it, it comes down to things like that but it is it yeah, look, what you're saying is really real. But then, you know, it's also keeping in perspective that as Australians, you know, even though our own circumstances might not be fantastic, you know, I, I write a lot about the developing world and just how bad it is for people who have, like, no agency, really. They're, they're literally, they might be living in 
um, shanty towns in, in parts of, you know, Nairobi or Mumbai. Um, and, and so when you stop and you think about yourself as a global citizen, it might help reconfigure your perspective. So I get it. Like it is really difficult right now for a lot of people, um, but it's also where we need our structural change. So this is where I feel like our activism towards what we do in our local communities really matters. And I have examples in there in, in the book about, um, you know, the town of Yakandanda in northern Victoria that banded together and got this community battery. And I just think it, it was so inspiring to just think about how communities can really go um, and move forward and, and start to really live that change that we want to see. So I'm not saying necessarily you're going to go get a community battery in a city, Melbourne or something. Well, that'd be great. Let's be honest, it would be great. But maybe we need to work towards those things. So I guess this is a, so in this moment of crisis, it is a moment of opportunity as well. So it's like sort of thinking about, well, are we over consuming? Do we really need to drive the car all the time? Right. So you know, for a lot of people that are struggling with petrol prices and stuff like that, it is a moment to stop and think. I'm not judging anyone around that. I'm just saying it's just an opportunity to stop and think about your own personal, the way that you interact and how you lead your life. So maybe that's a few thoughts on that one. It's a difficult question. Yeah. Great question. And David's saying, Joel, given your courageous journey, and personal reflections whilst writing the book, has it changed your focus on climate change in any way? Yeah, big time. I think writing this book is, as I've said to people close to me, I think it's the most important book I'll ever write. And I think I changed as a person as a result of writing it. I think it made me, I think in the past I used to compartmentalise my work from my personal life, but then all of a sudden I realised that um, that was just a way of sort of dissociating from the material. But when it started to become really intrusive, like when I had family displaced from floods, flooding in, in Lismore or also got evacuated by fires um, and seeing my own neighbourhood really transform from extreme weather, I really realised that this is the moment. And so for me, what can I do as a scientist? Do I publish another paper? research paper yes I can do that but it felt like the most important thing I could do was just distill everything I've learned over the last sort of 25 years of my sort of research career and and time teaching and all that sort of stuff and, and try and just pass it on in a hope that it lands with the people that need to hear it. it it ignites a conversation and it helps in some way so yeah it really did change me because it made you know how I was saying before realize that you're living through the most important moment in human history it made me think about what am I going to do in this important moment in human history turns out that I'm a writer as well as a scientist so one of my superpowers is communicating so I am communicating in the hope that I can help spark conversations for other people to have more conversations and do whatever do all the things that you can do uh, I'm trying to bring my skills to to the table to help help but um yeah so I guess it made me really sort of realize that the most meaningful and powerful thing I can do right now is communicate directly to the public. I, I, I'm getting less um, enthusiastic about sort of teaching um, university students. Sorry for any university students on the line. Um, it, it's fine. I've done that for many, 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 many years, but I just feel like I want to talk directly to people who really want to listen to what I have to say and can, and can action it because um, I'm literally coming off the front line to say, hey, guys, we need your help. 
Thanks. Um, there's another one here from Dash. Joel, can you recommend any particular potent avenues for action on local scales which need more focus? I suppose you'll say do whatever you can and anything and everything, but just wondering if there are any specific organisations or actions you reckon could have the biggest bottom-up systemic effects. Yeah, it depends on where you are, I suppose. Um, so it's a hard one for me to answer without knowing where you're located. But I think the first thing is figuring out what action is going on already in your local community um, and trying to be a part of those things. I think a really obvious one is trying to sort of decarbonise your electricity systems and your transport and all that sort of stuff. That's really something easy you can do um, that is really powerful and it is really collective and it can be really um, meaningful in terms of reduction of emissions. Um, but I, it also just comes back down to who is um, representing you at the local level in terms of your councils. Are they taking a stand for the things that you really care about? If they're not, then write them letters, go and meet them, go and talk to them, do what you can to, you know, um, yeah, I guess have leadership that is courageous. And didn't we not see that in, in, the, in the last federal election where we saw a new breed of independents and green candidates and other progressives in, in different parties come forward in this last election and we saw a, a political tipping point, didn't we? we? We saw something shift in Australian society in this last election, which to me says that we're all really hungry for this change and so I think political leadership at every level, whether it's the local, the state, the federal, the global, whatever, however you can engage in that, but I think getting behind the people that are representing your values I think is really important, more important than ever because actually everything starts at the local scale. So if you can stop and think about, you know, what your local council or local area, government area is doing um, and getting a bit more involved. Because if you do care, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's usually the um, coalition of the willing that gets anything done, right? A lot of people are so apathetic or don't have time and blah, blah, blah. But if you do have the time and you do care about something, then do that thing that you care about because that's going to be the most powerful thing you can do right now. So there's no prescription I can give to what should you do that really comes down to your passions. For some people, I talk a lot about cultural change and the role of artists and, and um, I really hope that, creative people really enjoy that part of my book because I also think it comes back down to the stories that we tell and how we make sense of this cultural moment that we're in and that isn't necessarily about solar panels what that's part of it but it's not you know there are many many different ways to engage in this conversation right now and that's what I'm hoping this book helps people feel like oh yeah I actually think I know what I can do and I don't mean that in a glib way you'll see like it, it's hard hard one insight this book in terms of because I deal with depression it's, it's like go talk to a depressed person and ask them where they find hope that's basically this book <laughs> so it's it's not like I'm not going to give you any um you know like it's it's the real deal if that makes sense so anyway I hope that helps I'm getting a bit tired and rambling sorry jump in Charles um yeah look I just had a bit of a question about um um a, a cultural question, I suppose it is. Uh, I think we may have talked about it before, mm. but uh, um, this book by the, the British psychoanalyst whose name escapes me. Sally Weintraub. Um, Sally Weintraub, thank you, called The Psychological Roots of the Climate Crisis. Yeah. 
describes what she calls as a sort of culture of uncare at the moment, which I think is a, a very important thing to, for us to think about because it basically means, well, what she describes as a sort of being in a bubble of uncare and so that we... We don't even we don't think we think about consumer things as you were saying, but we don't think about you know the things that are really important in the world mm. and particularly uh, climate change. Um, so I guess one question is, yeah, I mean that's something very difficult to change. It's a sort of another form of denial in a way that people are just. You know, when sometimes when they do come to our workshops, for example, or whatever, yeah. suddenly the bubble bursts. But yeah. it's a sort of very difficult thing. I wonder if you've got any thoughts about it. Yeah, well, I think the cultural values um, idea is something that I really explored in the book because I realised it's about what we collectively value. So whether that is, you know, the AFL results and we all care about that, well, how about we have a collective value around the protection of nature and the, the protection of life on this planet and having that as something that is a shared value, that we have a value for the, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, we care about that existing. So this culture of uncare is really this disconnection from, you know, if you stop and think about humanity's roots, you know, we would have lived in tribal groups and would have cared about who was in that group and the environment around us. But the further away from that that we've come and we're all living in our little boxes and disconnected from people, people do stop caring because they can't see where their food comes from or can't see that the ocean is polluted or can't see, you know, some of the, the consequences of this disconnection in our collective care for our, for our world for each other I mean this is the thing like it isn't just about the natural world it's about um it's also about the world's poor and the people mm. who are vulnerable and mm. and you know how we treat our most vulnerable says speaks volumes of, of what we who we are as a species and 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 I think those are the things that are really coming um to light right now and, and so it is really climate change really is a social justice issue more than probably anything people think about it as an environmental issue but it's actually a social justice issue in terms of you know the world's poor are bearing the brunt of just mass consumerism and overconsumption from wealthy nations that's the truth historical emissions essentially come from the developed world you know the, the de developing world have got the you know emissions um ramping up now as they as they are developing and, and they have every right in a sense but it's like we have to stop and think about that so that's why what, what what I guess I am challenging the reader to think about well what is it to be human at this moment what mm. is it to be alive and be a human at this moment what are we doing yes well I guess one of the other sides of it in a way is and what Sally Weintrobe talks about is if you do burst the bubble of uncare then it brings up a whole lot of very uncomfortable feelings, which is exactly what you talk about also in your book about the grief. And it's, uh, I guess this is something very important that we're sort of in a way, a lot of people can live a very superficial life uh, in this sort of culture of uncare, whereas when it comes down to it, you know, there can be real grief. And this is what happens in our workshops that we have, yeah. um, you know, people who come along and, uh, uh and 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 once they you know they say well look we've never really talked about these feelings mm. before and mm. uh, um well i think that that bubble you spoke of charles is really a protective bubble it's a bubble of denial once you remove that 
then people are vulnerable. And I guess this is what you guys are trying to do is provide people with a, with a safe space to be able to talk about, well, what happens once we actually step out of our protective bubble of denial and because it protects us. I mean, we need it to some degree, but again, with the medical analogy, do you really want denial if you've got cancer? Don't you want to deal with it? We, we actually do need to deal with it. So that's so. So if you did have the cancer, then there's going to be a bit of grief around that in terms of, oh gosh, my life is now, I might have a limited lifespan. What can I do to have a, to protect the life that I do have? And you, and you, you act from that place of knowing. And I think to me, that is, this is that this is really the journey in this kind of um, space for a lot of people, but it speaks to really deeper things about how you find meaning in, in a world that is rapidly destabilizing in many, many ways. And how do you be part of, you know, the group of people that are trying to to forge uh, uh, forward with 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 solutions to 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 really improve the situation, not to make it worse. So, you know, big things. They're, they're big themes. Mm -hmm. Charles, that might be a good segue to jump into Michael's um, question comment here. So Michael says, Joel, thank you so much for your passion, commitment, and contributions. Can you talk to the fact that, as far as I understand, all the IPCC RCPs incorporate considerable or even vast drawdown with technologies we don't have yet. Um, yep. Even 1.5 is not safe, let alone 2 degrees. I recall BZE saying 10 years ago that we'll need to build the reverse of the biggest industry mankind has ever built, the petrochemical industry, and I see no sign of that happening. Yeah, that's an astute comment, so thank you for that. Yes, it's true that all the IPCC scenarios do involve some level of drawdown in, in their scenarios, uh, and obviously that's, you know, that, that that's a big deal. And that's also why people are talking about, you know, the nature-based solutions to try and sequester carbon in, you know, whether it be in the ocean or through land-based ecosystems, wetlands, the restoration of natural places that do soak up um, those sorts of emissions. But, you know, land emissions are just 30%. Obviously, the industrial emissions are about 70% of the emissions that we need to, um, to draw down, as you say. It's a huge problem and this is why, you know, the IPCC are saying that, you know, we really need to turn the tap off emissions So, and then we need to mop up, okay? So we need to turn the tap off, which is the whole thing around decarbonisation. Um, and you're right, 1.5 degrees, for instance, sees 90% of coral reef ecosystems um, die off. And I would argue that if I was a Pacific Islander, I wouldn't say that's a safe level of climate change. With 1.5 degrees of global warming, that's displacing a lot of people. That's displacing, you know, tens of millions of people from low-lying areas. So I agree, um, but you've got to understand that the science um, is really complex. It's very, very challenging to parameterize some of these um, elements in these, these imperfect systems, these models, um, but they're the best tools that we have. So I guess you see it more as a guide in terms of, you know, it, it's very difficult. They're, they're kind of like a um, an indication of the projection of what we can expect from the different pathways, from low emissions, medium emissions to high emissions. So they are different pathways. And I do actually talk about all of those in my book. So, again, if you want serious detail, you can go in there. Um, but I agree with your, your general point, which is it's true. It's true that, you know, we have not included all the different elements of uh, 
you know, the climate system in our climate models. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's like trying to um, write an equation for how, you know, every component of the human body, how that works. As you can imagine, it's a really difficult thing. The Earth system is extraordinarily complex. So it's really hard. Um, but I guess the other point is that, you know, some of the technologies we need to draw down, um, you know, they, 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 they don't exist. And I guess this is part of the problem. So I guess as a scientist, I would like to just say, so let's just stop emitting carbon until we know how to sort this out. So, you know, there are natural systems that, as I said, sequester carbon, but they operate on geologic timescales. So we don't really have that sort of time. So we can do other things, which is turn off the tap and then nature-based solutions will help with some of those emissions. But yeah, it's true, 100%. It, like I said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And we're just coming to um, time for the Q&A, so we'll, there's another final question here. I apologise to all the, uh, the questions we didn't get to. Um, it's just a time thing. And there's a question here from David. Um, do you think that this global climate crisis will enable the so-called culture wars to unify, reduce intolerance <laughs> and socially heal such groups? Oh, I, love, I love that question. A banger for the end for you. Oh, it's really good. <laughs> Because that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? It's not what divides us. It is what unifies us. Let's be part of the group of people that want to come together on the things that unify us. All this divisive stuff, it's really just not helpful. And, yes, it's you know what? There's probably going to continue to exist. It's been with us since time immemorial. I'm sure back in the day, you know, cave people had big divisions in terms of whatever, whatever, right? That's probably always going to be the case. But I guess it's like how you show up in the moment and 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 do you choose to be a bridge between the different communities or do you choose to be someone who's polarizing and and stopping that healing and unity that we need so i guess it's like one of those eternal questions which is we're always going to have people in our communities that want to undermine and want to be divisive unfortunately that's the human condition you guys know a lot more about the human condition than me so i'm not going to tell you guys anything you don't know but i suppose it's just like as a human being, I would just choose to show up as someone that is willing to be a bridge rather than to, to be kind of detonating any kind of opportunity for, for knitting together and, and healing and coming together because that's what this humanities moment is all about. Can we reclaim our humanity and join up because we have immense capacity to do that and when we do that, we change the world. There's no doubt about it. The history is full of it. That's, that's what I loved about this book in the end which brought me out of my depression as I finished writing it, is that I realised that actually everything we need to do this actually exists right now, except for some of the drawdown, which I'm not going to talk about right now. But it's in terms of the social movement, it all is there. So we can do this is what I want to say. And, you know, it, it's our moment to think about how we show up. So um, I've really enjoyed tonight's discussion. It's really good to have a different kind of conversation for me. Um, so I don't know if there's any other questions, but there is one I think is important from Yuki here and then we well, then we will need to um, move on. But it says, um, Joel, thanks for sharing your story. You said that climate change is a social justice issue. I'm a non-white and up against white climate activists who want to reduce emissions so that they can preserve nature for white only. At the expense of non-white, non what would you suggest for white people to do to increase their awareness on how racial racial injustice is interlinked with capitalism and climate change 
Without such anti-racism awareness, BAU will continue making social justice, uh, injustice worse. Thank you. Yeah, really good juicy question again. Um, look, I think, you know, the, this comes down to some of these sort of historical biases we have in our society. So again, we could choose to be, like if you are white, you can choose to be someone that is a bridge between these different communities. Um, I mean, in fairness, you know, in a place like Australia, we have a lot of diversity and we do have a lot of, um, I think we have a really inclusive society. And so by and large okay there are we do have some issues but if you do stop and think about it I, I know of several indigenous climate action groups and pacific islander um, action groups and all sorts of things like that there are many many people out there but i would stop and think about what unifies us not what divides us black white yellow red purple whatever like you know again I wouldn't focus too much on that stuff, but I, I suppose it comes down to individuals and how you choose to show up. I mean, for me, I suppose when I sat at the UN table and like I said, I had people from Colombia and India and Russia and China and France and whatever, I wasn't sitting there thinking about any of those things. We were there collectively working together on what we felt like as a really meaningful collective goal. It didn't matter what our differences were we had more that united us that divided us so I guess in my own life experience I take that as a, a useful thing to think about because it just comes down to the individual so I mean I, I, I can't sort of guess as to why you, you know people have different sensitivities around these things but I, I guess um, I think in a country like Australia that's what makes us so unique I mean I've got an Egyptian heritage I represented Australia at the you know, UN level and I was born in Ireland, okay? So, like, I'm international. Who cares? It doesn't matter. We're all human beings. And so I think if we can just connect with our inherent humanity, for me, I think it's just about individuals. It doesn't matter, for me at least, um, you know, sort of racial or cultural backgrounds. I think that's the, the richness of we have such a rich society in Australia and I, and I love that. Um, and I particularly love that at the at the IPCC level. So I don't know if that helps, but um, yeah, a couple of thoughts there. Thanks, Joel. It's been a it's been a, a long night for lots of questions and and such an amazing overview of your book and Charles the interview. So maybe we can all give a you know thank you to um, Joel uh, for showing up tonight for this conversation and for her book. Um, and Charles, did you want to say something before? Carol's going to share some slides as we move into um, to closing out for this evening. Thanks, Joel. So I appreciate you. I loved the conversation. Thanks for the invite, guys. I really appreciated it. Yeah, and thank thank you for the conversation, Joel. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, great, thank you. Pleasure. And 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 I so appreciate the fact of how honest emotionally you've been in the book. I mean, that's going to be it's so great, and not only been so helpful for you, but for all your readers. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Joelle, and thank you, Psychology for a Safe Climate. I've listened to climate scientists since about 2005 and never, initially at least, did they ever say anything emotional. They always stuck to the facts. But they're changing, and Joelle's book is a wonderful example of that. That book is about the facts, but it's also about the emotions. It's also about the emotions that climate scientists feel and exhibit. 
Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. And yes, I'd love you to share it with your friends, as we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care.